Whistleblower Report, exposing lies, deceptions, and all that has assaulted our way of life. We must take back our freedom and live as God designed in a free America that honors our Constitution and our Creator. Our experts in medicine, ministry, law, military, environment, and education empower us to grow together as a nation. For such a time as this, the Whistleblower Report offers truth and solutions. I'm Major Mike Gary, and I'll be conducting your whistleblower report today. And this is going to be an environmental segment. And as you know me for my 25 years of uh, service and 15 years of that being in the hazmat technician field, this experience that I have will come in handy for today's uh, environmental report. Just uh, getting ahead of it, I just want to make everybody aware of that I'm not on representing the Department of Defense in any way. I'm giving my, you know, my own research, my own opinions, and my own ideas on this topic that we're going to be talking about. And what we're going to be talking about today, to kind of set the table for everybody, is the fires that have occurred up in Canada. Uh, several provinces have broke out almost simultaneously with these fires, um, which I'm going to give my opinion that a lot of this is arson and would fit under the banner of eco-terrorism. So that should give you a direction where we're going to go. And for this first half of the show, I'm going to talk about um, some of the recent reporting that has come out of uh, Canada from the different provinces. So we'll be going over some of the headlines there. We will discuss, um, you know, some some other things that may be related. Again, I say I'll uh, highlight may be related, as everybody probably listening to this show is <laughs> knows to keep their ears to the ground or ears to the rail and listen and observe for things. So I'm going to give you. Uh, some of my ideas on how these fires may have started. And then also what I want to do is give you kind of a practical from my experience and my background in the response field uh, of how things should go. And I think a lot of you probably know me from um, a lot of the different shows that we did during the February, March, April timeframe, Dr. Vliet and I covering the Ohio train wreck in East Palestine and what a mess that was. And again, in this show, on the second half, I look to kind of explain to the audience how the government is supposed to work locally, federally, in handling massive responses like fires. And uh, before we get to going too far, I just want to thank the donors out there. We thank you uh, very much for all the donations that you've given us. We are fund- funded mostly by small donors in a lot of them. And we have a very devout group of uh, people that donate to us. We thank you for that. And I think uh, the reward for you guys is that you actually get to hear and see uh, the effects of your donations for us in these uh, lawsuits that have come about in the last couple of years. You actually get to hear from the people that have used uh, these funds to actually fight specific uh, lawsuits. 
So I hope that's the reward in giving for you guys. And uh, I know it's been tough in this recent economy to donate uh, as we see all over that, you know, donations or people's excess income is down tremendously. So we thank you graciously for that. And we're well aware of the environment or situation that we're in when it comes to having excess funds. So thank you donors. We really appreciate that. And we continue to look forward to giving you a quality product in covering uh, news articles and things that are within our expertise, whether it's medical for stuff for Dr. Vliet, or if it's a government response for myself or any of the whistleblowers from any of the other different career paths uh, that they experienced retaliation or reprisals, we look to continue to bring good people with great stories uncovering all the evil that has gone on in the last few years. So, uh, to kind of give everybody an understanding of the condition of the environment in Canada, as you probably know, or probably where I live up here in the Northeast, in Maine specifically, and I, sh- the state of Maine shares its biggest borderline with Quebec province which is, I think, is probably the number one province at this point that's been burned up. So with the condition of the forest, and Maine is heavily wooded, so we share that. We're same, same as Quebec in relation to that. So what happens is if you have a snow load, uh, that will keep the the woods or the forest well um, hydrated, for a time until the leaves and the grass come up. So what happens if you have a dry spring and you get to about the May time, end of May timeframe up here in the Northeast, and this would apply for at least the Northeast side of uh, Canada. So Quebec province, specifically Nova Scotia, New Brunswick. And I'm sure this would apply to the, the West side as well, but I'm just going to speak from this side because I know it. And, uh, So when you come to that point, about May timeframe, and you don't have a lot of rain, what happens in the forest is you get all these broken branches, debris, and the the leaves haven't come in yet, or the grass hasn't come up yet. And that's a key point when the grass starts coming up, then your fire hazard starts to drop tremendously because any dead grass branches or any of those things becomes kindling uh, for starting fires. And, you know, if you get electric storms, thunderstorms, you know, that's when you can have some of these wildfires start on their own. Okay. So that's kind of a unique period of time. So snow load means a big deal with that. And then of course the rain now to give the audience, um, or a real world understanding up here in the Northeast. So we're talking, you know, probably from New York up to Maine, we have been in three and a half weeks of like clouds and rain. So we have had a ton of rain, um, in least in my state. Now, Quebec, we share a border with Quebec province. Now the way the jet stream goes, it follows right up the East coastline. Okay, and then sometimes depending on how far it dips down and whatnot, it can change the weather pattern, right? But typically the storms come right up the East Coast. Uh, We call them nor'easters up here. 
sometimes they they amount to massive snowstorms, or sometimes they just amount to large rainstorms. So we find ourselves here in the Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont area with a lot of rain. We have had a ton of rain. And this started probably about the last week of May, and it lasted into almost up to the current time. Um, so we haven't had a lot of sun. Now, that may not be the case for most of Quebec's province, where we got the rain, where we're slightly east of Quebec province and they could have missed a lot of it so their woods could be extremely dry so i just want to kind of point that out the condition so if you're not maintaining the woods and what i mean by that is harvesting trees and taking care of all the dead brush and stuff like that you do have fire hazards extreme fire hazards so what i'm going to do is kind of move through some headlines here and a lot of them are be coming out of what I call consider trusted sources, LifeSite News and Rebel News, which they are both uh, Canadian um, uh, news websites, and I've come to trust them in their reporting um, over the last couple of years. So anyway, I'm going to move in on to some of these stories to give you guys an understanding. My first uh, realization that there was fires going on came out of Alberta province. So this would be towards the western part of Canada. And this was probably for me back right around May into the 1st of June. Okay, so I have a story entitled Alberta Premier Danielle Smith calls for arson investigations to find cause of wildfires. The provincial leader refuses to blame climate change for the almost 175 with no known cause at the moment, okay? And this is out of LifeSite News, and this article is dated um, 12 June. So Edmonton, Alberta, Premier Daniel Smith pledged to hire outside arson investigators to determine why some 175 wildfires that have raged across the vast expanse of the province in recent weeks have no known cause at the moment. So to just kind of add my comment there, if they didn't have thunderstorms, electric storms, right, then then that would be a big question mark, all right? So if you're not getting rain, proper amounts of rain to hydrate your forest, and you have no thunderstorms, then that's a big question mark, Okay. So, and I'm I'm guessing this is the case. I know this is the case up in Quebec province. So we'll discuss that more when I get there. So Smith said, Smith made the comments last Thursday while speaking on a podcast with a known left-leaning host, Ryan Jesperson of Real Talk. I think you're watching, as I am, the number of stories about arsons, Smith said during the podcast. I'm very concerned that there are arsonists. And there have been stories as well that we're investigating and we're bringing in arson investigators from outside the province. Then she said, we have almost 175 uh, fires with no known cause at the moment. And then Jesperson uh, had claimed to Smith that wildfires in Alberta, as well as the rest of Canada, were a real life metaphor happening in front of us with a historic with a historic wildfire season. And then he uh, he says, every expert that we talk to indicates the significant factor that climate change is playing on 
our susceptibility to wildfire and on the conditions that lead to this massive blazes that are happening earlier and earlier in the season, he said. Okay, well, he's wrong, okay? I, I told you why. Um, okay, so this is Alberta province, so I can't really speak for that because I don't live there, but I can speak for Quebec province because they share the same, you know, trees, forests that we do is before your trees leave out, before the leaves come out on them, you have a high fire danger any year. Okay. Now, depending on the rain amounts, you know, that could be, you know, a lot more, a lot, or a little less, but there's always a fire danger there before the trees get their leaves and the grass comes out. Generally, the grass comes out in the state of Maine uh, at the end of April into the 1st of May. You've got good green grass, so your fire hazard goes down there. And then towards the mid to end of May is when most of the trees have leaves. And again, different trees, they all leave at slightly different times. As they do, your fire hazard goes down. So it's really important for the trees to get their canopy, uh, and then the fire danger goes down from there. Okay, so to just kind to lay overlay the common sense overlay, as I call it, or give you the common sense overlay on the whole thing is, right, we do this every year. The trees get their leaves every year. It's not coming earlier and earlier every year. All right. That's that's not an accurate statement by that guy. And, and, and about the climate change, here's something for everybody out there. I still plant my vegetable garden at the same time every year. The climate has not changed for me. So if you want to use the ultimate argument against climate change, do you still plant vegetables the same time every year? Okay, here in Maine, I wait for the last moon of May because the old timers knew once you wait until the, after the last full moon in May, after that time, your chance of frost has decreased dr drastically. So that was the, the old time rule that they used. And that's what I go by. Hasn't changed. All right. So no climate change for me. Just, just saying. All right. So sometimes it's those really simple common sense things that just break the foundation. Uh, you know, these, these environmentalists don't have a foundation. Okay. And I just gave you the key there. If you go look back through your books and the planting seasons for them, hasn't changed. All right. Okay. Moving on. Nova Scotia, uh, Royal Canadian Mounties police uh, blame arson for multiple flyers, fires. Excuse me. This is uh, out of the rebel news. And this is on June 7, Nova Scotia, Royal Canadian Mounties informed rebel news that none of the blazes reported led to any wildfires. Okay. Wildfires. However, there was arson fires. I'm going to read on here to give you that says Nova Scotia RCMP, which is the Royal Canadian Mounties, has initially determined arson is the cause of three fires in the province, prompting the government to stiffen fines for residents who violate its ongoing burn ban. Those caught lighting a fire in Nova Scotia will be fined a whopping $25,000 to avoid new fires. Initial investigations has determined that all three fires were the result of arson. Okay. And then the Nova Scotia RCMP, which Royal Canadian Mounties, in a statement, the Mounties are investigating three alleged arsons 
in Pick 2 County, including a commercial blaze and two fires along rural roadways on Friday. Firefighters and local law enforcement managed to extinguish each fire so they didn't turn into wildfires, okay, including those along uh, Granton, Abercrombie Road, and Mount William Road. On June 7, Nova Scotia RCMP informed Rebel News that none of the blazes reported led to any wildfires. They added their investigations into the cause of wildfires across the province remain ongoing with determination of the cause still being made. Okay, so um, Nova Scotia is actually to our east. And uh, so this would be approximately the second week of June, right around the first end of first week to the second week. And it seems like, you know, Alberta province, the fire started first out there or the echo terrorism started first and moved its way eastward and uh, so by the time uh fires started in nova scotia the the responders the police the uh mounties were well aware that arson is the majority of the cause right so they caught these fires before they turned into uh, wildfires that's my opinion on this story so i just wanted to share that with you um so the Nova Scotia fires would have started after or right around the time of the Quebec fires and Quebec being slightly to our west. We share that western border with them. And I have another story on the Nova Scotia uh, fires. It's entitled Nova Scotia Police Thwart Three Arson Attacks as Media Blames Climate Change for Wildfires. I'm not going to read this one, but I just want to show that there's another headline from another place, uh, from another source, talking about the Nova Scotia fires, okay? So moving on, uh, the ones that I wanna spend my time on is the Quebec fires, because like like I've told you, we share a large Western border with Quebec. And typically when there's fires in Quebec, uh, the, the winds can take the smoke into my state or the Northeast. And because we were under rain for, like I said, three and a half weeks, clouds, rain, uh, we did not actually get the smoke here in Maine, which is weird. It actually got pulled down south of us and went to like states like New York, uh, Washington, D.C. Uh, so between Washington, D.C. and New York, so that would be uh, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, uh, Connecticut, and some of those states down below there would have received the lion's share of the smoke and that's because the way the jet stream was operating it the rain systems were kept kept coming up the east coast and when they pull in a counterclockwise rotation it probably threw that smoke south of us so we never really experienced the smoke piece of this like i know i have another story here uh I know a lot of you are probably well aware of the intense smoke that went to the New York City, right? And the, you had that orangey hue. It looked like hell. A lot of people were saying it looks like uh, hell in New York City, and they were calling in time stuff, right? There's a article from CNN where it says the headline is "Intense smoke fills New York City and forces a code red in Philadelphia." as millions from East Coast to Canada suffer from Quebec's wildfire fires. And this article is from CNN, but it's on June 7, 2023. Okay. 
So anyway, to give you the timeline of that, and that's when all those reports on, you know, um, the smoke inhalation concerns and pollution and the pollution factors in the air and all that were becoming a concern for everybody living in those areas. And that lasted for several days, but I did not experience that. So I've got an article here out of LifeSite News, and it's entitled, uh, Satellite Footage Raises Possibility that Arson, Not Climate Change Theory to Blame for Quebec Fires. And wildfires started simultaneously across the province have led uh, police investigating possible arson while mainstream medium politicians continue to blame climate change. Here we go. Here we go. All right. In this article, LifeSite News, like I said, it's um, 8 June 2023. And it's a great article, which I'm going to provide a link to it has a a tweet in there from wide awake media and this guy's got satellite images from um the day these fires occurred they occurred simultaneously all over the province of quebec all right and some of them like right due west of our border and those would be the ones responsible for smoking out new york city so uh, it's like a minute 10 seconds go watch that uh watch his explanation of the satellite imagery of it when i saw it and i think i saw it probably the end of the first week of june i i said that's arson absolutely that's that's a coordinated echo terrorism that's going on there there's no way that that many fires simultaneously started all over the province okay that's my belief and my opinion on it but when you go watch it it's pretty convincing and uh, so I'm going to read on with this article here out of LifeSafe News. It says, as the mainstream media continues to blame climate change for the fires in Quebec, satellite footage shows the mysterious simultaneous eruption of several blazes across the province, which is experiencing its worst ever fire season. Okay. So while not widely published, the Toronto Sun revealed that Quebec police are investigating possible arson attacks as the cause of the province wildfires. There is an investigation because the cause is suspect. Certi de Quebec media officer Hughes uh, Bollier said, after the wildfires initially erupted in Alberta, they have now spread across Canada, forcing many citizens to evacuate their homes, while others are affected by poor air quality as far as New York City. And we just talked about that. Quebec fires are not the only outbreaks to have uh, suspicious origins. The Royal Canadian Mounted Police have arrested several arsonists who have been charged with lighting fires across several provinces. Okay, this has happened. So they've actually arrested many. So including Nova Scotia, Yukon, British Columbia, and Alberta. The motive behind lighting of fires is unclear, but they have all taken place in the same time period. Okay, Albertan uh, John Cook. Remember that name, John Cook, has been arrested and charged with 10 counts of arson after setting a string of wildfires in and around Cold Lake, a hamlet near Edmonton. Okay, and I read the earlier article from there. Okay, I'm not going to proceed anymore on that article. I think I make my point here that this is eco-terrorism going on. And to kind of bring locally why 
I've come to this conclusion is up here in Maine, we have a lot of forests and we have uh, companies that like to uh, develop or harvest the, you know, the forest. Okay. And uh, not saying I'm totally taking companies side on, on all these different land developments or harvesting, but Maine has a good reputation for treating the forest well and harvested it in a in a good way that's beneficial to everybody. And some of these companies did actually do a good job. And but I have seen over the years ecoterrorism take place when some major developments wanted to happen and clear some land, uh, forest land. We've seen ecoterrorists show up and destroy equipment, uh, you know, just defame or plaster awful stuff on the CEO's houses or where the residents or, or some of the business owners and do those type of things. So I'm familiar with the echo terrorism piece when it comes to land development and harvesting wood up here. So there, there's no level of the evilness that they'll stoop to, to actually uh, make their point, whatever their point is. And I offer the fact that they aren't actually try attempting to protect the land and take care of the land. Another great example up here is the fishermen. We have a large group of fishermen who, you know, they love to harvest the fish and they don't want their uh, resource to go away. So naturally they're doing everything they can to be wise and smart about harvesting animals. And every year we see, politicians continue to make it more and more difficult for our fishermen on our coastline to to actually harvest those fish. I mean, they practically, with the last round of legislation that they put through, they've nearly put the fishermen out of business. Uh, and not, not drawing any conclusions here that politicians are connected to environmental terrorists. However, as I've read those articles, I think you can see that nobody's reporting that arsonists are to blame, right? Only the LifeSite News and the Rebel News, which are all alternative media sources, are reporting this. They're actually reporting that there's arsonists all over Canada that started with most of these fires, or at least some of these fires. So why aren't they talking about it, right? I think that's your answer right there. I mean, that's how I've come to believe on a lot of things is when they're silent, when the mainstream media or the politicians are silent about something, they're typically covering something up, right? So that's just my thoughts on that. When we come back after the break, what I'm going to do is discuss um, some interesting things that happened towards the end of May. And then I'm going to go into, uh, like I said before, a response and how things should be handled when it comes from the government. And I think probably one of my skills that I bring to the table is I was a part of, you know, national response. And I think that's important for civilians to understand and know how their government's supposed to operate. And the fact that Taxpayer money had been used, put to good use at some time to build these response organizations and to lay down the law to have proper responses, whether it's local or federal response. So I want to get into a little bit of that in the second half, and because um, I think this is a good time to, to kind of bring that out. All right. We thank you. And uh, for listening to this first half, we'll be back. And don't forget to go to our website, The Truth for Health. 
truthfoundation.org. That's truth, F-O-R, healthfoundation.org. Go check out our, um, you know, our COVID treatment guide, our COVID vaccine injury treatment guide, which is very sought after, and our other uh, helpful products that we bring. And uh, we will be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to the second half of the show. This is your whistleblower report hosted by Major Mike Gary, and this is an environmental segment. And we are discussing the fires up in Canada. And uh, as you heard from the first, first half of the show, I believe it's mostly arson, and I fit it under the banner of eco-terrorism. Okay, so welcome back. Uh, we thank you, donors, for all your gracious donations to the Truth for Health. We uh, appreciate everything that you've done for us, and we are continuing to fight for the constitutional rights of Americans and our military personnel. And again, thank you very much for the donations you've given to the Truth for Health Foundation. All right, getting back to discussing the fires there was one news article that i actually didn't get to in the first half that i want to read quickly uh and then move on uh to other things like i was telling you before the break this one is entitled wire wildfires are destroying quebec's bull real forest but what is the cause and this is out of rebel news and this is june 19th 2023 and what i have here is I'm just going to read the first couple paragraphs and because it gives you kind of a size of the fires in uh, acreage. So since June 1, the province of Quebec has been facing a significant disaster. This year's wildfires are unprecedented. Quebec has, you know, it's historically, right, it's a record. Quebec has already witnessed the scorching of 740,000 hectares of boreal forest. I think that's the same thing as acres. Uh, don't quote me on that, which is more than 300 times the average during the spring season over the past decade, according to the Guardian. Spring season, right? Before the trees get leaves, before the grass comes up, that's where your fire hazard is, right? It comes again in the fall when you lose the leaves, right? So anyway, um, that was reported out of the Guardian. And then within 72 hours, um, so few S O P F E U, which is an acronym for some type of response unit. It's not, I'm not seeing it here. So S O P F E U, a forest fire protection agency. Okay. That's what they are based in Quebec recorded 95 new fires. The number continues to rise resulting in the evacuation of numerous communities and villages. One of them is the Cree community located in Mistazini, a small village in northern Quebec with a population of about 4,500. Like many others, Mistazini has experienced several devastating fires that have left lasting scars on the collective memory of its residents. Uh, rebuilding and resilience have required significant efforts throughout history. Quebec has faced numerous uh, major wildfires in the northern part of the province. According to community members, the fires that have been a, have been a profound impact on citizens include those from 1996. Okay, so for you listeners out there, in 1996, 
I was 16. So that tells you my age. And that year, I remember the orange hue up here in Maine because the winds, the prevailing winds were correct. And we got the uh, air pollution from the smoke in that 1996 fire. And I remember for several mornings, because I was getting up early and working several mornings, uh, that the the sky was orange. And I remember that it was probably for three or four days in a row that it happened like that, but it's, you know, left a permanent memory in my head. And then it also goes on in 2006, in addition to the current ones. So anyway, uh, those 1996, 2006, and this year obviously have been big fires uh, to be recorded in the Quebec province. So I just wanted to kind of put that out there, read that really quick for you guys to kind of show you the scope and scale of the fires in Quebec province. It seems to me like Quebec um, fires are the worst province hit, even though they started in Alberta. Now, what I'm going to move into is some, uh, some other suspicious things and put your thinking caps on and put yourself back a month, month and a half ago. And there were some weird things that hit the news. They even hit the mainstream news. Do you remember uh, satellite phones being given to half the U.S. senators? Remember them talking about cyber threats taking down our Internet? The electrical grid threat? And then how about 60,000 pounds of ammonium nitrate disappearing? Remember about a month, month and a half ago, uh, the news mainstream, as well as alternative media, uh, you know, reported on these things. So I just want to you to put your thinking caps on, put yourself back that time. Okay, the ammonium nitrate is what I'm going to cover. Okay, and uh, this is going to be interesting here. Okay, so the article says... Uh, it's out of New York Times. So here's a mainstream media article to, to prove my what I just said. And this is written back on 21 May of 2023, obviously. And it says 30 tons of explosive chemicals lost during rail shipment. The chemical ammonium nitrate is relatively harmless by itself, but has caused deadly explosion and industrial accidents and has been used in targeted attacks. Okay, so I'm going to read on. Um, just to, because I'm, this is where I'm going to spend my time is on the ammonium nitrate. Okay. And then I'm going to kind of give you one of my hypotheses after I read this. Okay. About 60,000 pounds of ammonium nitrate, a chemical used as a fertilizer and in explosives went missing on a rail shipment from Wyoming to California in April and has still not been found, officials said. Dino Nobel, an explosive manufacturing company, notified the federal government of the loss and said in a statement that it was investigating what happened during the nearly two-week journey. The company said the rail car with the material was sealed when it left a manufacturing site in Cheyenne, Wyoming, and the seals were still intact. That's crazy. When it arrived in Saltdale, California. So with those, those seals, right? I know this from like doing samples from the hazmat environmental hazmat side that you put specific seals or locks in a way that only the person on the other end can break them. 
they're only allowed to break them because of the chain of custody. My guess is there's a chain of custody here too with these seals. Usually when there's a seal like this, there's some type of chain of custody. So I don't know that 100% with this, but this is this is highly suspicious, okay? And so who who has the access to that? Okay? So there's a big question mark. Okay. Um Let's see, where was I? Back to Wyoming for further investigation that had limited control of the train's activity while the cargo was being transported. Kristen Self, a spokeswoman for the rail carrier Union Pacific, oh, there they are again, said in a statement that the company's investigation was in its early stages. The fertilizer is designed for ground application and quick soil absorption. Uh, Miss South said, if the loss resulted from a rail car leak over the course of transportation from origin to destination, the release should pose no risk to public health or the environment. That, that That's crazy. There's no way that much stuff could go away. That's my opinion. The company could, you know, like off gas or dissolve into leak out of the car. That's crazy. My guess is that car is set up to prevent that right just like we were talking about ohio east palestine right they say they're special containers for transport right okay so the, the company said it does not suspect any criminal malicious activity was involved in the disappearance of the car that's crazy okay that's what the company says do we believe them i don't Anyway, moving on, the Federal Railroad Administration, California Public Utilities Commission, were also investigating uh, KQED, a San Francisco radio station reported agencies could not be reached for comment on Sunday. Ammonium nitrate is used mainly as a fertilizer. It is also used to manufacture first aid products such as coal packs. And as an explosive in mining and construction, according to Department of Homeland Security, the, the chemical by itself is relatively harmless, but it can explode if added to fuel source and subjected to heat and pressure. Ammonium nitrate is certainly a well-known disaster risk, said Fred Miller, an independent chemical disaster expert. Ammonium nitrate was used to bomb the Alfred M. Murrah Federal Building in downtown Oklahoma City in 1995, killing 168 people. In 2013, 15 people were killed and more than 260 others were injured in West Texas after ammonium nitrate exploded at a fertilizer plant. Federal investigators said in 2016 that the fire that set off the explosion had been intentionally set. That's something I'll probably follow up on and check into that. And then the last part of this, it says in August 2020, more than 2,000 tons of ammonium nitrate stored in a warehouse in the port of Beirut, Lebanon, exploded, killing more than 200 people, injuring another 6,000, causing widespread damage to the city. Okay, I'm gonna call. Uh, I'm gonna call that out. That that story there. I don't know if you if you guys remember back that Beirut explosion. If not, go look it up online. And I'm just gonna tell you that thing was massive, and there's no way ammonium nitrate did that. Okay, I'm not. Uh, EOD train, Explosive Ordnance Division train. However, I have been to many uh, explosive ordnance classes, so I'm no by no means an expert, but I have been trained there because in C-burn, sometimes they throw the E on the C-B-R-N-E, E for explosives, and uh, because when you do hazmat response with chemicals, 
quite often there's chemical bombs. So you have to be somewhat trained uh, for hazmat response to be able to differentiate whether it's a bomb or a chemical process. So I do have some overlapping training when it comes to explosive. And, and, and again, I'm not an expert, but I'm just going to tell you, go look at that Beirut bomb. And that thing looked like a nuclear weapon going off. That, that's just how I'm describing it. You make your own opinion up, but I'm telling you that was not ammonium nitrate in that one. Okay. Because if it was that easy to, to make that massive a bomb, wow. It looks like you could easily steal the stuff off the rail yard and they're not going to have a clue who took it. Right. According to this article. So anyway, with that, I'm going to say Quebec right next door to where I live. I did not experience the smoke uh, pollution. However, there was one night, and this goes back to June 7, 8th time frame, which was like a Wednesday, Thursday time frame. And um, it was one of those evenings. It wasn't raining, but the clouds were very thick, and it was like, like a fog, very dense. And I remember my wife and I stepped outside of the house in the evening, and we stepped out to smell uh, what I would call, what I characterize as ammonia smell, okay? And then my wife said, no, that's like like plastic burning smell. And it was so heavy in the air that we actually checked out my garage uh, to make sure there was no fire, right, or anything going on and make sure we didn't spill anything. But I characterized it as ammonia. My wife characterized it as a slight plastic burning smell. Okay, so it was so thick in the air that we were checking things out to make sure it wasn't anything burning, right? Okay, so when you burn ammonium nitrate, that is the smell produced. It's a faint smell, and uh, that's what it gets characterized as, what I just said, okay? Like a faint ammonia smell or a like a plastic burning smell, okay? That was in the air very heavy that night, which is the time frame of the Canadian fire. Oh, excuse me, the Canadian Quebec province fires for us. All right. So as you can see, I think that ammonium nitrate made its way into, you know, evil players hands and was used widely to start those fires because it's, it's perfect because you know, even if you start a fire, you got to ensure if your intent is to burn down the forest, you got to make sure it's going to get hot and it's going to spread uh, fast and effectively. And you got to make sure you get some type of fuel to do that. You know, just just attempting to do that with gasoline or some other type of fuel like that, you you may not be successful because again, the leaves are coming out. It's pretty hard when the leaves start coming out on the trees because you got all that green and all that fluid in the leaves in the tree um that first lining of the tree right underneath the bark is filled with fluids and water to grow for the year and if you have wet wood it doesn't burn well i burn firewood to get through the winter and i'm telling you wet firewood does not burn so you really got to have a hot hot fire and then you got to really spread that hot hot fire to get it going if your intent is to create a forest fire. Okay. So even though it seems simple, a lot of these fires burn themselves out because they just don't have enough fuel. And that's why this year is unique up in Canada 
So I just offer that to you guys to think about. But those things did happen. It made, uh, you know, like the satellite phones, the cyber a threat that we're kind of under, the grid, electrical grid going down, and of course, that ammonium nitrate disappearing, which that's where your ammonia smell comes from, right? Ammonium nitrate. And when you burn it off, some of the byproduct left in or the off gas and left in the air will be that smell, okay? And, uh, and it makes sense because that's urea, right? And that would be the smell is slight ammonia in, in urine, right? I, can, I don't know the percentage amount, but that all makes sense, right? So hopefully I've laid out um, an argument or here that makes sense to you. And again, it just tells you to keep your head on a swivel and keep observing things. And I think that's what's great about social media is we're able to communicate in a fast way, just like um, the guy that did the satellite uh, pictures there, I think from wide awake media there, that tweet on that, on that story and where he was showing all the fires broke out all at the same time in the Quebec province. I mean, I would have never suspected arson if I didn't see that. Right. So I think that's the awesome thing about today's time. We can communicate fast in an effective manner and bring convincing information uh, for people to make their own decisions about things. Okay. So now this last piece of the second half, I'm going to move into uh, response, you know, like local federal response, just to kind of educate um, the listeners out there on what's supposed to happen. And I used to run, I was the deputy commander for a uh, like a tier two or the second level of a National Guard response to a hazard. Uh, hazardous material response. Okay, so the unit was called a Seaburn Enhanced Response Force Package, or SURF-P. And it was approximately 200 people, and it was built with unique characteristics. It had a search and rescue section, which was about 45 people. And it had a large medical section of uh, about 40. And then it had a large uh, mass decon section, which was approximately 50 people and command and control cell. We also had um, fatality, uh, uh, fatality search and extractors, FSRT. I think the acronym was for that. So they would take care of obviously, um, you know, deceased people that, that they f- would find in debris or rub- rubble. And I'm trying to think, oh, in a, in a commo section that was very highly skilled and had a lot of unique uh, communications equipment to be able to communicate if in case like grid, electrical grid down or, you know, cell phone towers down. Well, anyway, so this is a highly specialized unit, mostly built. The, the ultimate intent of this was to be used for a like a nuclear weapon. Okay, and it makes sense, right? The the military would have units to respond to like a nuclear weapon uh, fallout. Okay, so picture nuclear weapon goes off and then you have a lot of rubble, a lot of buildings. So probably in an urban area, right? So you need search and extractors to be able to work in um, levels of PPE, personal protective equipment, and then you would need the medical staff, the decon staff, right, to take care of it. All right. So that's some of my background to kind of 
set the stage now for what I'm going to say. I want you guys to be aware of the fact that FEMA, so between the military and the civilian side, which is FEMA, a federal emergency management agency, right? Well, when we did the Ohio um, whistleblower shows, East Palestine, right? And I was talking about every state has an emergency management agency, right? Well, the so local is set up to deal with specific functions, okay? And what are these functions? Okay, so I'm going to read down through they're called ESF, emergency support functions, okay? And they're listed ESF 1 through 15, okay? And ESF 1 is massive, you know, transportation assets, okay? So your state, uh, so like here in Maine, they have emergency support function 1, transportation, and they already have pre-designated plans on where they would get transportation assets, and a lot of those would come out of your National Guard. Some of them would be come out of agreements with companies. Some would come out of your Department of Transportation. These are all pre-planned agreements that are out there. Okay. I've been a part of these uh, planning or update the plans for the state and federal. I've, that's what I've actually come from doing is ensuring that these plans are up to date. Okay, and that's why some of the things that I said back in on the East Palestine lack of response, response, uh, there was already pre-designated plans, and it was just uh, crazy what happened there. Okay, so ESF-2 is communications, ESF-3, public works and engineering, ESF-4 is firefighting, and back then I was talking about these firefight ESF, emergency support function 4, firefighting S. They have pre-designated plans that talk about this, okay, and where to get it. ESF-5 is information and planning. ESF-6, mass care, emergency assistance, uh, temporary housing, human services. ESF-7 is logistics. ESF-8, public health and medical services. ESF-9, search and rescue or urban search and rescue, sometimes USAR. Uh, ESF-10, oil and hazardous material response. ESF-11, agriculture and natural resources. ESF-12, energy. ESF-13, public safety and security. ESF-14, cross-sector business and infrastructure. And then ESF-15, external affairs. Okay, and the unit that I described to you that I came from was... It built into it, it had ESF-9, search and extraction, or search and rescue. It had uh, ESF-10, hazard material response. It had ESF-8, public medical uh, health services, right? And some others. Okay, so the guard uniquely put that unit uh, together to deal with, uh, you know, mass casualty type of event. And for those of you out there, yes, I used to handle money and I have hired, <laughs> uh, you know, casualty, mass casualty actors. Okay. Now I know there's always this big thing about out there about hiring actors for, you know, some of these uh, training events. I used to actually do that. So not all of those stories are true about, you know, fake events being staged all over the country. A lot of them are truly training exercises and I have done the contracts for those. So I am familiar with government contracting too, as it relates to that. 
Okay, so Canada probably has a similar way of requesting those emergency support functions, okay? Because it's pre-designated plans. Usually Canada does everything that we do, okay? And um, those emergency support functions, let's take fire, for example, uh, a good explanation is the movie uh, Only the Brave, which is the true story of the fated wildland firefighters. And this was, uh, so it's a good movie to watch to get an understanding. It's a new film, new film when this was written. So it's a couple of years old now. A new film called Only the Brave is based on a true story of 19 members of the Granite Mountain Hutshots who battled and ultimately lost their lives in Arizona's uh, Yarnell Hill fire during late June of 2013. Hotshots are the elite crews that attack and try to contain wildfires with chainsaws, shovels, flames, and other stuff. Okay. Go watch that movie. That shows you about a local um, team trying to get qualified to be like a FEMA team to actually fight fires. Okay, we're quickly, uh, time's running out and coming to an end. We'll talk more about response because I'm sure there's going to be more and more of these uh, type of events that happen. We saw a bunch of industries burn up over the, the spring and winter time frame. Um, so we'll be talking more and more about environmental hazards and things as they come about. And I will give you more and more of my wisdom as it comes from the hazard response or the response side of things. That's all I have time today. Hopefully you found this a helpful show and it's taught you a little bit more about how the government is supposed to operate. And of course, a lot of things were my conjecture or my thoughts and opinions. We thank you. Go to www.truthforhealth.org. That's truthforhealth.org. Join our crusade. We are silent no more. Sign up for our email alerts. Check out all our resources that we provide for medical advice to ministry help and constitutional rights. This is Mike Gary signing out.